Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. This is the second in a short series about the psychology of writing. Last time we looked at the effects of stress on creativity. Today I want to wheel our ordnance round and concentrate the full force of our big guns on the great mountain fastness that is mindset. Now, Lots of writers and books on writing touch on this subject, but we, we tend to come at it piecemeal. You know, it's a stock answer an author gives at a book event Q&A. It's a paragraph in a listicle of useful writing tips. Writers are expected to talk about this idea as if we know it's just assumed that we would, of course, have cracked it. And I don't think that that is necessarily healthy. I wondered if we could come at this problem here on the show a bit more wholeheartedly with a spirit of genuine open inquiry. What's going on in our heads when we write? Now, I used the neutral term mindset just then rather than the more commonly deployed concept of the inner critic because, well... I think talking about your inner critic as something inherently negative to be expunged is unhelpful. At the very least, it makes assumptions that we might want to test. We can do nuance, folks. Because sometimes, you know, you might read something back to yourself and think, hmm, this is shit. And and you're right. It's just However you slice it, it's not good writing and you have identified a problem, right? That a critical voice has done criticism on your work in progress and, and made a save. It's it, shit. It is. It is. There's no way around that. You delete an unnecessary word, you rephrase, you change a repeated word that makes it clunky and the line reads better. Brilliant. Maybe you delete a whole scene. Even better. Is that something that we really want to just get rid of? And I think we all secretly know this at some level, right? You've definitely read books where you felt like maybe an editor or the author themselves could have held themselves to a slightly higher standard, where some bits feel a bit slapdash, a bit improbable, a bit lazy, where you feel it's not quite finished. Like judgment, discernment keen critical eye these are all valuable skills if you're an author maybe essential if you want to be a good one you can use them to make your writing more fluent more entertaining if we start adopting this attitude that the inner critic is this nebulous psychic adversary who must be opposed whenever they show their presumably bespectacled pinch-lipped visage what we're saying is The moment I gaze upon my work and detect room for improvement, that's a problem. Something's gone wrong. I must stop my thoughts like someone slamming on the emergency brake on a cable car ride in a 1930s thriller. Stop! Don't listen to the inner critic. Keep writing. Keep writing. This is a horrible, ineffective, ultimately counterproductive way to write. Free yourself from guilt. Free yourself from judgment. Sounds sublime, right? Sounds healthy. Sounds like a easily said statement that no one could possibly disagree with. Well, maybe if you've ever tried to shut down some of those critical thoughts by labelling them the inner critic and trying to suppress them, you've experienced this. The more you try to suppress a thought, the more fully it occupies your attention. Don't think of a chimpanzee dressed as Gandalf. Don't think of Donald Trump licking yoghurt off a bronze bust of his own head. Thought suppression as a metacognitive strategy is mentally taxing. It takes up a lot of resources. It uses effort that we could be putting elsewhere so it makes other things harder. And... It doesn't work. In fact, it makes the thing that we're trying to suppress pop up more. So it does the exact opposite of what we want it to do. It's like it's like trying to prevent your child's seaside picnic from being ruined by seagulls by 
intermittently standing up and firing a Kalashnikov into the air. You're, you're doing all sorts of things that make the situation ten times worse. It's like the man me and my daughter once saw swimming in the sea at Winterton and there was a seal swimming just behind him and it, it looked really lovely. And I said to Suki, my daughter, she was two at the time, I said, oh, look, that man and the seal are swimming together. And as he approached the shore, we could hear him shouting at the seal. Fuck off! Fuck off! That strategy didn't work for him and it won't work for you. Shouting made it harder for him to swim and the seal was unconvinced. And there's a part of you, right? There's a part that won't be put off by either cheesy sloganeering, you got this, well done, you can do it, or by your shouting at it, fuck off. This part of you that will follow you doggedly because it knows sometimes your critical thoughts have a point. What I want to look at today, and like I say, it involves nuance, is the slightly more gnarly but infinitely rewarding work of examining our mindset. Not trying to just paper over parts, but listening to what they're saying. Asking, what's going on here? Not just carpet bombing anything that looks like it smite smack of criticism. You're not that delicate. You can cope with it. Not just sticking our fingers in our ears and pretending we can't hear ourselves or our own misgivings. Actually listening to the stories we tell ourselves as we write. Examining them on a case by case basis and thinking, OK, is this true? If so, does it give me information I can act on? It might be helpful. Oh, look, this one has a grain of truth, but is partly a distortion. I can make it more accurate. And this one isn't right at all. But wait, why would I tell myself that? Because if you can't apply discernment to your own work, you're only half an artist, stepping back, stroking your chin and thinking, hmm, what do I think about this? How can I make it better? That's not an act of self-hatred or personal sabotage. You're not betraying your divine vision. Editing and redrafting are not acts of cowardice. You know what is an act of unkindness towards yourself, an act of personal sabotage, in my personal humble opinion? And bear in mind, I am mentally ill, so you might want to take some of the things I say with a little, a little scratching of salt. Not listening when part of you says, something's wrong, help. Shouting down or ignoring the voice inside of you saying, hey, I'm not happy, I I'm worried. Turning the most vulnerable parts of you into an imaginary adversary, the inner critic who's trying to stop you achieving your dreams. There is no secret Jungian shadow author hunkered down within your psyche waiting to knock the pen from your hand or pull the plug on your laptop. Can we stop propagating this imaginary bollocks like it's somehow documented clinical fact these things don't exist they're just another story we tell ourselves and, and it sounds plausible right so we, we and we hear other authors talk about it so we keep handing it down without ever going hang on is this true is this what's happening look there may be patterns behaviors strategies that at some time in your life perhaps your writing life perhaps your life beyond writing served you at some level or maybe they were never good ideas you've just never given yourself the chance to get better data. You've never tried life without applying these thought patterns or these beliefs. And once you can see where you've made choices, and that involves listening, if you want, you can choose otherwise. Maybe even choose better. There are practical ways we can reconnect with our worries and with our needs. And that doesn't have to be scary or negative. Often it's pleasingly simple once we shovel the elaborate furniture of this is the kind of person I am or this is just how writing is to one side. Sometimes there's stuff you have to get rid of before you can see clearly. It's a bit like emptying your vacuum cleaner, right? You maybe change the filter, you dump all the dust in the bin and perhaps you shake out a 2P piece that's stuck in the brush attachment suddenly the whole machine just works better. So uh, in preparation for this little series, I wrote to authors who've been guests on the show before and I asked one simple question. What's the most unhelpful belief you have about writing? 
and I'd like you to note the wording there. An unhelpful belief might very well be true. It doesn't have to be a lie to be unhelpful. I'm not assuming a thought must be perforce false just because during the act of writing it gets in the way either. What's the most unhelpful belief you have about writing? I was just interested to see what a range of professional authors who I personally admire um, have sometimes told themselves. And they were people whose email addresses I all had as well. So it seemed like a, I, I felt like I had an in, right? And to be honest, I, I thought you might be heartened, not in a schadenfreudery way, but just in a kind of fellow traveller way to hear that for most of us, publication is not some magical liberation from doubt. We're all in this together as writers and human beings. But none of this is going to be about them or for them exactly, although I'm very grateful for, to them for um, submitting stuff to me because uh, obviously these are some things to do with doubt a lot of the time and uh, that you know might make them feel a little bit vulnerable so it's really generous of them to be so open and honest and help um but over the next few episodes i'm going to be use a few of their responses as jumping off points for discussing general mental sticking points that lots of writers face it would be lovely if we could just turn this into a session of uh, cheap voyeurism but actually I, I want to turn the spotlight back onto you and onto me, quite frankly. A very few of these things uh, that people gave responses to are things that I haven't thought myself. Uh, and I'm, as someone who is a little bit neurotic or sometimes a lot neurotic, depending on my mood and what I've been through that week, I feel like I can relate to a lot of these things. And you might not feel these at the same intensity as me. But you can learn from my mistakes. And because I've learned, I've experienced them at such an intense level, hopefully that means I've got a little bit of insight on them as well. And I can share that with you. And together we can, you know, keep stepping forward, keep growing, keep developing and try and just make our attitudes a little bit healthier. And I think a lot of these principles apply for lots of people facing any task that takes a while that requires self-motivation and that sometimes gives ambiguous feedback and where some of the outcomes are uncertain. Perhaps as we go through these, you'll become aware of similar or adjacent beliefs you repeat to yourself as you write. I would like you to think about these so when you're writing next time, you can just try and notice your thoughts a bit more. And I'm going to share some ways you might start questioning, yes, sometimes the truth value, of those beliefs, but also your beliefs about those beliefs. Sounds complicated. It is a little bit intricate, but um, just thinking about the these beliefs, perceived utility and instrumental function, the reason we might be reluctant to let them go entirely, even though they seem unhelpful. As a final piece of framing, I'd just like you to experiment with thinking less in terms of silencing the inner critic or banishing self-doubt and more with this less romantic yes slightly inelegant but to my mind more accurate and useful concept of recognizing maladaptive cognitive strategies recognizing maladaptive cognitive strategies look I'm not under the delusion that we're going to permanently cleanse you of all distorted mentations in a little under 60 minutes of course not I'm fantastic and insightful and handsome, but I can only lead the proverbial. I'm fantastic and insightful and handsome, but I can only lead the proverbial horse to water. But I bet you and I can start right here, right now, a process of listening and inquiring that can lead to our experiencing profoundly less grief in our writing lives. That can maybe dislodge the two pence piece, or perhaps the. Uh, What's, what's the currency they have in America? The uh, uh, sawbuck. Yes, that's it. The sawbuck stuck in the brush attachment of your creative vacuum cleaner. We can help you start to understand what you tell yourself and why. And once you know that, you can decide how well it serves you and if there are parts you'd like to change. And that, to my nerdy, neurotic mind, is pretty damn exciting. So 
let's just jump right in, shall we? Uh, I'll do these in, in, in no particular order. It's going to take us a few episodes to get through them. So first off, here's Temio, author of terrific space colonisation struck dark high school drama, Do You Dream of Terror 2? She said, in response to my question, quote, I have so many unhelpful beliefs, Tim. I think the most unhelpful thing I worry about is people will be disappointed with this. Whenever I think I'm trying to be ambitious or challenge myself a little, I worry that people will see what I was aiming to do and shake their heads sorrowfully and say, it showed such promise, but it really missed the mark. Also, writing book two, I think I really should have started off by setting myself smaller goals. Every time I had two or three hours free, I would think, you only have two or three hours to finish this novel, which is obviously a pretty insurmountable task. And so I feel stressed out and frightened at the first hurdle. End quote. Oh, the classic second book worry. People will be disappointed in this. Some similar automatic thoughts we early career authors tell ourselves as we write. This won't be what they're expecting. This won't be as good as the first one. People will feel I've let them down. People will think I've lost my touch. Maybe she only had one book in her, they'll say. Maybe I did only have one book in me. Maybe that was it, and it's out, and now writing for me is over. Now, isn't it interesting that these thoughts for Temi really ramp up when she feels like she's pushing herself and expanding her conception of herself as an author? Just, I want to repeat that for a second. Quote, whenever I think I'm trying to be ambitious or challenge myself a little, I worry. End quote. That's really interesting and key, and I don't think she's the only one. One of the freedoms we don't realise we have as an unpublished author is the expectation that no one on earth gives a shit what we're writing. So you decide to write a story about a circus run entirely by alien brain parasites. Why? Fuck you is why. Don't like it? Write your own fucking book. There's a power to that attitude. You don't have a reputation to defend. You don't have an audience to please. You are you, immutably, beautifully, uh, unimpeachably you and to the wider world. That doesn't mean very much. So your potential can feel infinite. You're just like this chrysalis and we don't know what's inside. Now, of course, there is a flip side to this. You know full well there's a flip side to this. Before you're published, uh, I don't feel legitimate. I'm, I'm not a real published author like those glowing seraphim up on stage with their actual physical books with spot gloss covers and their photo in the back. Gosh, I bet it's easy for them. Humans have a baked in negativity bias and, and we are very, very adept at taking any advantageous situation and identifying the threats because we think it's important to spot salient threats because they're the thing that's going to take you out, right? The good stuff, we want to be able to spot food and sexual partners and opportunity and stuff like that. That's all useful. But the immediate problem we have to spot is threats in the environment. And that doesn't just apply to physical threats. It applies to threats to status, which is what this is all about. Depending on where you are with your writing, worrying about your second or third or, or tenth book may sound like a luxury problem. You may be screaming at your speaker now saying, Tim, you don't know you're fucking born, which is why so many authors shut up about it. You know, we shut up about it for fear of coming off entitled or or illegitimate, like this is a weird thing that only we... So, so we suffer in silence, right? Which is why the gap between book one and book two can be one of the loneliest treks of your entire fucking creative life. You got what you always wanted, right? You, you got your fucking book. Are you happy now? Are you happy now? None of the insecurities you thought would be purged by that publication contract have actually disappeared. You might have been holding on to them for a long time. They haven't gone. Very few of the emotional payoffs have emerged. You were kind of banking on this to fix your entire personality. In my case, since I was like literally five, I'm going to become a professional author and then I will be fine. That can be fucking traumatic. And we shut up about it because you sound like a smug, middle-class prick if you talk about it. But it's true. And now you have to start again with less help, less time, more expectation. 
suddenly you're inside the cassock looking out and you don't feel like a vicar. You feel like someone dressed up as a vicar. And now you've got to do a fucking sermon. That might actually be an insight into the nature of authenticity, by the way, that we've stumbled across there at the risk of sounding like a stoner in the kitchen at a house party at about 2am. Maybe our sense of authenticity is false because we always construct it from the outside in. A vicar is someone dressed up as a vicar. So if you ever tell yourself people will be disappointed in this or something similar, people aren't going to like this, there's no market for this, agents are going to hate this, what can you do? Well, first off, in CBT terms, that's cognitive behavioural therapy, by the way, not cock-ball torture, though I read a study recently that suggested people in the BDSM community score lower on traditional measures of neuroticism than the general population, so both types of CBT may serve as their own kind of therapy. One might identify in this statement, people will be disappointed in this, a number of thought distortions. The first of which would be what they call the fortune teller error. This is overconfidence in your ability to accurately predict a future event. Can you be sure that people will be disappointed? What is your hit rate historically when it comes to predicting human behaviour and particularly human reactions? Is your hit rate 100% or less? And we're talking about something some distance into the future, a project you haven't completed yet, so the data you're working off is incomplete, something that's not part of a routine. You know, it's not like you're predicting that the post will come sometime today. This is a, by its nature, a one-off. So can you be sure that people will be disappointed? Or would it be more accurate to say people may be disappointed in this? Seems like hair splitting. CBT, in part, is hair splitting. But when you're working at the neurological scale, a hair is a pretty big deal. Secondly, I'd suggest there may be some all or nothing thinking here. That's what they call it in CBT. All or nothing thinking. That is splitting things into... It's the fallacy of the excluded middle. Instead of uh, allowing for shades of grey, we say something is binary. It's either on or off. It's either brilliant or awful. It's either failed or succeeded. People will be disappointed. What? All of them? Who's people? It's like such a sinister term. People will be disappointed. It's like taking readers on block as this single homogenous mass. The people have spoken. There's something faintly ominous about people wielded in this way. The people start to feel like Gustave Le Bon's political mob, right? This undifferentiated, atavistic force of retribution like a weather front readers people they're almost biblical right oh look here comes the people with their eye of judgment are you suggesting every single reader will be disappointed every single person who reads this book it's certainly possible that at least one person will right does one reader count as people uh, how many p- readers count as people right or do we think given that people actually accounts for lots of different human beings some of which you know i'm sorry to say won't read the book at all um do we think that within the readers of the book a range of reactions are likely to exist is has that been your experience with your previous books has that been your experience with other books including classics of the genre in strictly epistemological terms of course the answer to this conundrum is we don't know Will every every single reader be disappointed? We don't know. But again, we're looking for a more accurate statement and we can take into account these two objections and we can look at the balance of pros- probabilities, right? What's the likelihood? And I think something more accurate than readers will be disappointed might be some people may be disappointed in this, right? Some people may be disappointed in this. Some people. Doesn't roll off the tongue as easily as people will be disappointed in this. Doesn't have that delicious shock collar zap to it either. Do you notice that? Some people may be disappointed in this. Doesn't just have quite that. It doesn't feel... It's not that... It's not as... It's not as solid a club to beat yourself with. People will be disappointed in this. Some people may be disappointed in this. 
It doesn't hurt so much to think about it. It doesn't feel so much like a threat you have to deal with right now. It's less likely to activate your sympathetic nervous system and stimulate the production of adrenaline and noradrenaline and cortisol. None of those things kick in in the same way. Some people may be disappointed with this. And and that line suggests the just as true logical corollaries. Some people may not be disappointed in this. Right, That is just as logically accurate. Some people may enjoy this, can also exist within the same universe, but you, but you don't repeat those statements to yourself. You don't think over and over, some people may not be disappointed in this. You don't think that as you write, do you? Even though it's just as true. For a minute, I'm going somewhere with this. And then look, if you like, we can play the what if game a little bit further because we can try and follow some of these things and look at what the actual eventualities they're talking about might be. Because whenever you think these things, you're stimulating that uh, sympathetic nervous system. You're kicking off the fight, flight or freeze response as uh, described by James Cannon in his 1915 uh, classic. Uh, you're kicking off all these things, but you're not actually giving them a situation to act in, and it's not resolved either. And 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 that, what what? I mean, let's follow. Let's play the what if game uh, a little stages further. Let's go a little, a couple of levels down the tech tree. Right. What if some people do turn out to be disappointed in this? Well, you might think, I would be sad. Okay, great. On the surface, it seems a reasonable response, right? But uh, let's have a look at that. What would happen if some people turn out to be disappointed in this book? I would be sad. Now, again, we are in fortune teller territory here. You might be like, hold up, Tim, you just asked me a what if question. How was I supposed to answer that wasn't speculating about the future? Well, Good point. What we're looking at here is refining your level of confidence in your prediction. Not make we all have to have some kind of idea about the future, otherwise you wouldn't be able to make toast, right? Because you wouldn't be able to predict I'm gonna put some bread in this toaster and push it down and probably something's gonna pop up that looks like toast, right? Obviously, but we're looking at balances of probabilities. And what I'd say to you is like, how's that worked for you in the past? Guessing your personal emotional reaction to finishing projects. In this case, a book. You did, after all, uh, Tim, predict that getting published would silence a lot of your personal doubts about being good enough as a writer and as a person. That doesn't appear to have happened yet. Look, it might do down the line. These things might build on one another, but we can say that if it does, the act of getting published, the act of having good reviews, the act of having readers who loved your book, the act of getting long-listed for a, a, a literary prize, these things were not sufficient on their own to improve your emotional state. So could we at least amend this statement too? I might be sad. And Let's go a stage further. B is such an all-encompassing word. We, we're phrasing sad as a label here. I am Tim. I am a writer. I am sad. Labels are global and they have this full sense of permanence and they don't acknowledge all the other things you might be simultaneously or in the future or that you might have been in the past. So again, in the name of, of, of nothing but fidelity to the truth and a desire to accurately reflect reality, could we amend that from a static state to an experience? Because that's what an emotion is, isn't it? It's a temporary experience that modulates our perception of reality. It's not an identity. So instead of saying, I would be sad, great, we end up with if some people are disappointed in this, I may experience sadness. There. Not an outcome we'd look forward to. I'm not like, oh, brilliant. I really love sadness. But that statement feels more manageable, right? If some people are disappointed with this, I may experience sadness. Yeah. And it's OK to prepare for that. And it's OK to feel those things. Let's go again. What else? If some people are disappointed in this, I won't sell any books. I'll never get published again. I'll have to stop writing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down there. Fantastic. Really honest disclosure there. Fictional writer who is based quite a lot on me. We're getting to some core beliefs here. And, and it's easy to sort of make fun of them. But these are the things that make people really miserable, make human beings, a lot of whom I admire a lot or love, um, makes them really sad. One of those people is me. If some people are disappointed with this, I, I won't sell any books. I'll never get published again. I'll have to stop writing. 
So let's scrutinise each and, and see how realistic it is. I won't sell any books. So by now, you've probably guessed I'm going to call you out for fortune telling here, which is great because now you're learning the skill yourself. I won't sell any books. That's fortune telling. The only way to guarantee, absolutely stone cold, 100% guarantee not selling any books is to not write any. Otherwise, if you're producing books, there's a chance. It's possible. There's even a likelihood you will sell at least one book. I'm going to go ahead and add that this involves the thought distortion of catastrophizing, which is blowing up the consequences of something into a huge negative outcome. And, and maybe there's some all or nothing thinking here. Those two things tend to shade into one another. I won't sell any books. Really? Not one? Wouldn't it be more accurate, though less sort of emotionally satisfying in that slightly sort of like beating your own head with horrible thoughts way to think if some people are disappointed in this I might sell fewer books and, and look I let's go a stage further I hate to tell you but you can write a shit hot book and it not sell any the publishing industry is not a perfect meritocracy heaven forfend far from it chance and luck play huge roles there are structural inequalities, trends, gatekeepers, prejudices, both within the industry and within the larger culture in which these books are released. There's prize culture, which has all sorts of problems and skews author, um, skews publisher resources around a, uh, a vanishingly few number of titles. So it would be also true to say it would be equally logically consistent. It is contained within the logic of the first one to say, if lots of people love this, I might sell fewer books. Both statements have equal truth value. But you could argue reasonably, and I think let's, you know, let's be fair and challenge our own challenges. It might be a contrib... But you could argue reasonably, and I think it's worth, you know, going after truth here and challenging our own challenges, that... People not liking your book or some readers not liking your book might be a contributory factor towards lower sales. So you might say, given that, if a large percentage of readers are disappointed in this, their opinions might make lower sales more likely. Their opinions might also have little or no effect. That's true and reasonable and it's not sugarcoating it in any way. There's no, no pixie dust on this, right? It's just the closest we can get to messy, nuanced reality. And when I'm mentoring someone and, 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 and we get into these kind of dialogues uh, and I you know, point something like this out when we get to talk about their kind of in, inner thoughts and how, what they think about when they're writing, you know, sometimes we, we, we have a little back and forth like this and, 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 and they'll often go, oh, yeah, damn, you're right. Yeah, God, I've got to stop saying that to myself. Like, their response, they responded like this process wasn't a genuine inquiry on my part. It wasn't cooperative. It was rhetorical, right? And I was deliberately leading them to this point, this conclusion with a series of leading questions. And now I've sort of beaten them down with a series of sort of stock logic answers. They're being asked to confess a kind of intellectual failing and and concede the point right and i want to make it clear because i've made this mistake in the past that is not my purpose here I, i've done that myself right as a writer or in therapy right i've gone oh damn you're right yeah what a stupid thing to think and that response it might seem like a breakthrough's happened but what it actually does is very deftly deflect the line of questioning it's a way of tapping out. You go, oh, yeah, you're right. God, yeah, I'll have to work on that. And that actually e often ends the line of inquiry, right? And the person who's talking to you, the mentor or therapist or whatever, then lays off. They go, oh, I got my point across. So, And in therapy and creative writing mentoring, which are two distinct disciplines, by the way, don't get me wrong, but they have a lot of overlapping skill sets and modalities such that at times you'd be hard-pressed to say which you were observing it's very easy as the tutor or therapist to hear someone say, oh, yeah, you're right. And I feel like you got your point across. You feel satisfied. It's like you've grabbed, 
grab their uh, sumo nappy and slam them outside of the ring. And, and it's like, yeah, we're done. I win this basho. And that's not what it's about, right? You, you shift into this hierarchical view where one of you is the authority handing down facts to the other, the student, the acolyte. And you send them away with their new understanding, feeling very superior, like I've finally passed down a piece of wisdom. And you actually cheat both of you out of cooperatively and collaboratively pushing that little bit further and making a big schematic discovery about why the hell they tell themselves such things in the first place. Why would you lie to yourself like that? Oh, look at that. I said schematic there in the last in the last paragraph. Now my heart's pounding. Let's quickly pick up those last two ancillary but very powerful automatic thoughts that came off the back of the what if. I'll never get published again. Yeah, okay, so uh, you can guess by now that this involves fortune-telling, a statement of absolute certainty about an uncertain future. It's also catastrophizing and all-or-nothing thinking. We could change it to if some readers are disappointed in this as a result my chances of being traditionally published may be lower than they are now that's more accurate but it's also something you could append to almost any statement about writing in a market forces may change the commercial environment for the worst the editor who loved your last book may leave the sauron's eye of public opinion may shift its fickle burning gaze to another target so What's motivating us to tell ourselves this? I'll never be published again. It's not when I don't need to just look at the truth value of this here. We can say, why would you say that to yourself? Why would you repeatedly say that to yourself? I'm not shaming you. I'm asking the question genuinely. I don't see any evidence for an inner imp of the perverse in psychology who just says unhelpful things for the hell of it. Why would we club ourselves with this threat, this stress inducing, this anxiogenic statement hmm i'll have to stop writing so obviously this isn't true it just has a prima facie gloss of bullshit and i don't think anyone who's ever thought it or said it to themselves really believes it but let me be human for a moment if i can gosh like if you say this to yourself i've said this to myself a lot if this is your worry i can totally understand why you're upset why it would stop you in your tracks. What a horrible thought. This thing that you care about so much, from which you, when it's going well, derive meaning and pleasure, which occupies your thoughts, where you can daydream about it pleasantly. This thing is going to be snatched away from you. Uh, or, or, you know, what's kind of like under this, sometimes when you say, I'll have to stop writing, we don't literally mean someone's going to prevent us from writing, but we mean writing will be too grim and depressing and going to bring up too mem many memories of inadequacy and failure for us to continue writing. Uh, that is a d distressing and sad future for you to imagine. No wonder you feel in those moments shaken, depressed, fearful, your morale falls away and you feel exhausted. No wonder... It's hard to write. I expect it's really challenging to get words out, to be creative, to have the inner mental fortitude to get over tricky things or chapters that aren't quite working under those conditions. And even though the thought doesn't have really much logic behind it, it has a powerful emotional punch, especially as it's so depressing that it kind of induces the conditions you're afraid of, right? It has that element of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now you are kind of too depressed to write. So, I'll have to stop writing contains another shaky if-then prognostication. Maybe the dodgiest, least tenable we've seen so far. If some readers are disappointed in this story, I'll have to stop writing. Wait, what? Why? Well, well, no one will want to buy my books and no one will want to publish them. Well, we've already seen how those are suppositions, predictions, guesses, really, that might or might not come to pass we just don't know and, and and guesses at the extreme end of badness by the way they're not like guesses somewhere in the middle they're not like conservative hedges they are the worst case scenario trust me i have seen loads of authors i get authors on the show all the time I speak to dozens and dozens i know loads my friendship group is all made up of authors and artists and people who work in creative industries i have seen so many just 
eat shit with a book or a project or a play. It comes out and, and it just drops off the map. It just goes and no one no one takes it up, right? And sure, they don't rejoice at the book's lack of recognition. That's not, not, not a wonderful result for them. But they continue to be alive and they continue to have ideas for stories. And the days and weeks and months are going to continue to pass whether you write or not. Whether you allow yourself to be happy or not, time is going to keep moving forward. So in the end, you just go, well, I'll open up the old notebook and have a tinker around with this. You know, I'll just, I've got an idea. Maybe I'll just write myself a paragraph. And before you know it, you're jotting down ideas and then you're writing again. In fact, look, you know what? I, I wonder if you can find me an author out there who has just led, led a like charmed life from start to finish where no book they ever wrote was ever rejected by an agent or publisher they didn't do a project that they put their name to that didn't do as well as they hoped if you if you can find me that person and they did more than a single book right and died young then let me know because i can't fucking think of a single person living person i know a single living author who hasn't eaten shit in their career at some stage you didn't need anyone's permission to write before. You won't in future. Writing is voluntary. Steve Aylett, uh, one of my favourite ever authors, wrote a fictional biography of fictional pulp author Jeff Lint, this writer who has a cult following but never quite gets mainstream success. Uh, so... Steve Aylett includes imaginary quotes from caustic or baffled reviewers who don't get Lint's weird stories. Then he adds, quote, Hopefully such expressions of disapproval are stages in the journey toward being cut loose entirely. End quote. To me, what he's talking about there is freedom. Success can be painfully deforming. And I know you don't believe me. I know you're going, yeah, fucking right. You don't know you're born. But I see it all the time. The older I get, the more true I realise that is. It can make you feel shackled to a fickle amorphous public of whose tastes you know almost nothing. They become like this distant proxy parent who you can rarely seem to please. Look, I'm sorry to say, but there are market trends completely out of our control. There's no sense pretending that's a palatable viewpoint. It's not. We love the idea of a controllable world where pulling lever A always produces result B consistently. We don't like uncertainty. Especially not if you're feeling anxious. Especially if you're not feeling anxious about the book. That need for certainty increases. Anxiety craves certainty. I struggle to sell books sometimes. I struggle to sell tickets for my events sometimes i don't think that's because i'm shit but occasionally seeing it as my fault as going oh you fucking dips shit you're losing it sometimes that sounds attractive because then it's under my control again but maybe once we come to terms with the truth that only parts of this process are under our control and you know a lot of the things that go well Really, we've got other people to be very grateful towards for those things. They're not necessarily they're not necessarily reflective of our brilliant character. Once we realise that people might connect with our work or they might not, there's kind of a lightness. Maybe it's us who need to be disappointed, not the readers. Maybe we need to be disillusioned, freed from our illusions. You know, writing and storytelling for some people at some points in history has been more like a spiritual path than working in direct marketing and being your own personal entrepreneur. It's not, it's not just a fucking golden road where you get bathed in glory. Is that what you thought it was going to be? Did you think you were going to start writing and then you were going to be on your book tours, signing books, becoming a millionaire? 
maybe we don't need to add to our challenges as writers by imagining that a lack of approval, a lack of prizes, a lack of money means we've gone wrong. And like, I'm guessing, I don't know, but is it possible that hitting success after success after success and never facing any emotional or lifestyle hardship teaches us less than going over the handlebars and eating shit over and over and surviving? I just wonder if what we really need to learn isn't, yes, the people approve of me and my writing, but, oh, I'm enough without their approval. See, personally, I like to give my readers a choice. They can revel in my bizarro side realities of melting flesh and scarabs who love to crochet, or they can fuck off. You don't even need me to tell you that your writing's enough. That's just another form of mentorship, right? That's another instance of you giving over your sovereignty to an outside agency. You don't need Tim here to tell you that you're enough and that you're allowed to write what the fuck you want. We can support each other as a community. That's a nice thing. I'm not saying we can't turn around to each other and go, hey, you're fucking great. I love this, right? I'm happy to do that. And it comes from the heart. I promise you it's lovely. But by accepting the truth of your own legitimacy, just understanding that there's nothing to wait for, you know, this is it. Now you are the writer, right? And everything else is just meaningless baubles that will make you feel privately fraudulent when you get it. You actually, far from coming off as arrogant or deluded, Reduce the burden on those around you to carry you through your own work. It's a great way to make an audience relax, right? Hi, I'm going to be okay whether you like this or not. I did, that's, my gigs always go best when the audience know that they're not having to act as my therapists and coaches and cheerleaders for the entire show. I'm all right. Hey, guys, this is for me. This is this show is for me. If you enjoy it, great, but I'm doing it for me, really. It's funny. Don't enjoy it, right? Let's come back to that big question we dimly apprehended as we've been tweaking these individual thoughts of this particular distortion. What's motivating them all? Because I really do think there's something behind it that often we deal with this in a superficial way and we never get to it. What's motivating this desire to say these negative things to ourselves? What are we paying attention to? What are we monitoring? What questions are we asking that produce these automatic thoughts, this particular unhelpful belief? In this case, people will be disappointed in this and its follow-ups. Why would we do that? So the the, you know, the the traditional answer is there's a an inner critic. It just exists. It just lives in your head and it comes out to attack you. It's like a kind of psychic boogeyman. I don't see any evidence for that ever. I've been speaking to psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, people across all the disciplines um, of mental health for months now. Not one person has ever said that that exists. Uh, and nobody has ever shown me in the literature any study that, that proves it. So, OK, we can keep that as a hypothesis, but at the moment unproven. Are there any other explanations? So you're writing and during that process you decide to shift from creative mode, from this divergent thinking, from possibility generation, from exploration, from discovery to evaluation. How am I doing? Right. Those are two different modes. You've got finite cognitive resources and you make the decision. You're going to shift some of them temporarily from production to quality control. So you start looking at what you've most recently written and you ask yourself in your head, will the people who liked my first book like this? And sometimes that question might, let's acknowledge this, return a positive result. You might look at your work and go, will the people who liked my first book like this? Yes, this fucking kicks ass. Yes, this is going to feel like a massive payoff to loyal readers. Yes, this is in fact a moment of indulgent fan service that may alienate new readers, but who cares as long as I rally my shrinking base? So already we can see a potential payoff, right? Occasionally you switch to evaluation mode and you go, is this any good? And you go, oh yeah, shit, this prompts me to imagine a pleasant future. This feels good. I feel good about myself. I'm doing it, right? This is reassuring. And and, and this the behaviour of checking when you do that gets reinforced. What a wicked reinforcer. Oh, I get a little bit of emotional relief. 
I'm worried about a thing. I've checked it. It's okay. Whew. It's like checking your phone for messages, only it's imaginary emails from the future. In fact, it has a lot of similarities to um, what ends up becoming pathological when you check that you've locked the door to your house, when you check you've switched off the gas, when you check things it can become obsessive after time but obviously this is the beginning of the scale see now whereas a traditional cbt approach would be to take each of your automatic thoughts in turn as they arise people will be disappointed in this and ask can we be sure this is true and maybe acknowledge like some different distortions in it we can go one step further we can go one tier up and we can ask what is the value of attempting to predict how your finished novel will be received what are you hoping to achieve or prevent by forecasting futures? How much confidence do you have in the reliability of these predictions? Do you have a big enough data set? Are you an impartial observer? Do you have total confidence in, in your impartiality in this scenario? Is all the necessary information in place yet for you to make an accurate judgment? What effect do you think splitting your attention between creation and speculation on long-term outcomes is likely to have on your ability to do the work and to enjoy it? I imagine if you're anything like me, if you dig deep enough into one of these questions, they might return an answer like, I'm trying to stop myself going off course. I'm, I'm trying to prevent a bad outcome. I don't want to waste time taking the book in the wrong direction. I don't want to be shit like some of those other books I've read where they're not good enough. And while I do think there's value in interrogating each of those answers in turn, seeing how realistic they are, whether they contain any distortions, there's also the danger that you're going to get caught back up in this loop of arguing with individual thoughts. That's worthwhile. I think that's something that sort of a bit of journaling can um, really produce dividends on, right? But it is a lot of work because we can generate automatic thoughts almost instantly that's the nature of their being automatic right we can just fire them out of the so sausage factory of our mind and more nuanced rebuttals take a while i'd like to be clear i do think they're worth it but they just take a while and at some point we maybe want to go one level up and see where they're coming from let's imagine you become aware after doing this process a bit and checking in with your thoughts the next couple of times you write let's imagine that you re find that you repeatedly ask yourself will people like this right because you realise that you believe that maintaining a high state of vigilance for content people won't like is going to save you pain later on down the road, it's going to improve the book and it's going to protect your career. Which are all reasonable goals, right? So then my question would be, how well does hypervigilance achieve those completely understandable, laudable goals? Because a lot of the time, if we're being completely real here, if someone challenges us on our thoughts, our negative thoughts, we'll, we'll concede the point, won't we? We'll go, oh yeah, oh shit, just like I was saying earlier. Oh yes, I'm so silly to criticise myself, I shouldn't care how silly I am. I'm so silly to criticise myself, it's such a, a wonderfully self-contradictory statement. I know, I shouldn't care. We'll concede the point, right? But privately, we keep doing it because we secretly believe it fucking works. This isn't coming out of self-hatred or perversity or stupidity. We are making, in our minds, a rational trade-off. Unexamined, yes, distorted, almost certainly, but a perfectly rational trade-off. I am prepared to experience the discomfort, the pain, the stress of subjecting myself and my work to this rigorous evaluation and negative feedback because I believe ultimately that the payoff is worth it. I believe ultimately that this process is necessary necessary. And what I'm saying to you is, given how painful this kind of thinking is, you would want to be damn sure that the strategy you've adopted actually achieves the goals you're using it for. Because wouldn't it be a horrible irony if, let's imagine, not only was this ineffective, not only was it generating suffering in your life, but in addition, it was actually making the likelihood of achieving your stated goals, writing a new book that people like, reducing your own suffering in the future, sustaining a career as an author, less likely, not more. What if there's an unhelpful belief about beliefs governing all of this? A metacognition. And that metacognitive distortion is... I must tell myself bad things will happen if my work isn't good enough to force myself 
to write better. If I don't, I'll screw up. Because if, underneath everything else, you believe that, then we're going to struggle to make interventions at the level of individual unhelpful beliefs. You will lie like an addict not to give them up. And you'll conclude that you're an idiot for not being able to. Some voice deep inside you is screaming, don't take them from me. They're the glue holding me together. They're protecting me. And you can interrogate those statements just like we have with lower tier thoughts. The truth is, right, this metacognition. I must tell myself bad things will happen if my work isn't good enough to force myself to write better. If I don't, I'll screw up. The truth is you can deal with disappointment. The truth is you can deal with disappointment. The truth is, some readers are fucking stupid. Some reviewers have bad taste. Some editors and agents are rubes and unimaginative dunces. I mean, that sorry, that last bit is a joke. I'm exaggerating. That would be the cognitive distortion of labelling, reducing a complex human being down to a single permanent thing. Also, I don't think being unkind to other people or sort of lacking in compassion or empathy for them is ever a strategy that pays off in the end. But the stories publishing industry people love may be very different from the ones that I personally do. And if someone loves something I create, great. But that doesn't mean that I'm now bound by blood oaths to serve them creatively to the end of time. They didn't even ask me to do that. There are other humans out there. Readers are increasingly promiscuous, according to the agents I talk to, when it comes to authors as brands anyway. They follow big titles, they follow trends, they follow stuff that wins awards. To be frank, a good number might not turn up for your second book, even if you build it as this weird shrine entirely to their imagined whims. And honestly, as a reader, I would much rather read someone who wrote a book going, I don't give a fuck if you like this or not. I wrote this for me because I wanted to, because I had to, because it was the thing I was led and driven to write. I don't want some prostrating cowed underling going, oh, great reader, how oh, your radiant glow shines upon me unworthy pages, pray. Take pity on a poor author and deign to inhabit this temple to your greatness, what I wrought purely to celebrate your glory. They probably can't guess what I want anyway, because even I don't know what kind of story I want till I see it. I want variety. I want surprise. What I don't want is a fucking butler. I want storytellers. If you're interested in this topic, you might like to go to my chat with Guy Gunaratne, where he talks about exactly this problem of imagined reader expectation after writing his novel In Our Mad and Furious City. In fact, fuck it, here's the clip where we bring it up, because I think it's worth your hearing his idea about the concept of the new contract. And you go, oh, no, oh, that's actually that's just like a bad. I've, I've done a bit of crypto plagiarism of something I saw on the TV two weeks ago. Oh, yeah, shit, that's already been done. And if you are imagining an audience, if, if you are sw going straight to the evaluation stage. It's goddamn paralyzing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's yeah, man. Like it, it, but this is I feel as if I, I probably got that advice sometime early last year. Um, and I just, I'm, I just, I don't know, like I feel as if good reviews or anything nice being said is probably worse than the bad stuff. 100%. You know what I mean? Like, what, like it's already, and I've told my editor this, it's already a problem that she's in my head now. Already that's like, I know that's slightly limiting. Because I would write a thing and I would know that she'd, because it was a two book thing. So I know that this is my editor for the next book. So I know that she's going to read it. Before that, I had zero audience in mind and I think that's a wonderful brilliant liberating thing um it's like I feel as if they might be in need for a new contract it's like look I'm gonna go away and write and not think of you at all and you're gonna be have to be okay with it and I'm gonna write this thing and I'm gonna come out and go okay here here's another book and it might not be the thing you're expecting and it might not be the thing that they might not be, it might not have the, the thing that you liked about the first book, but at least you know that I went away and actually did the work and didn't think about trying to do the same thing or wasn't really worried about your opinion. I would appreciate that as a reader. You know what I mean? Like I would appreciate not 
I'd appreciate my opinion not being part of the, the process of you writing a book. If I was, you know, if I liked to write and I wanted to read that thing. That's back from season two. You can go and listen to the whole thing if you want. It's one of my favourite chats I've had. And his novel, which was a debut, right, was definitely my favourite book I read last year. So next time we'll move on to some more unhelpful beliefs from real authors. Whew, that went deep quickly, didn't it? And we can have a look about how we might challenge some of those thoughts when they crop up during our own writing. And slowly we're going to be looking at patterns and building a, another schema that we can look at some of our general ideas and beliefs about beliefs. Some of this might feel uncomfortable. Some of it might be a little bit re repetitive. After the first initial kind of like shock of engaging with your emotions, after a while we go, Pff, I'm not sure I can be asked with this, actually. Uh, that's up to you, but I do think it's worth it. And as you push through, it starts to reap genuine benefits. That's okay, you know, this is growth. This is what it's like when you do anything, when you engage in kind of like a fitness program. There's initial enthusiasm, then there's a slump, and then maybe we rally. And then we go in a series of looping up and down slumps and rallies. That's fine by me, but what is important to know is that this is growth and we're looking at the general trend over time, not just where we are in any one day. And, and look, this isn't about banishing demons either. We're not snatching away your safety net either. But change is uncomfortable. And just be aware when you have moments of going, oh, I'm not sure I like this. Sit with that and interrogate it a little bit as well. This is just very practical nuts and bolts maintenance. We're just dripping some oil into your beautiful machine and getting all the gears to mesh. It's going to be okay. Wow, fucking hell, that was um, was more intense than I expected. <laughs> wow. But we're alive. Look, none of us know what happens next. We are in the world existing, pushing forward on the knife edge of time. That's fucking cool, right? It's wild. You are wonderful and valuable. True fact. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.